I'll start off as I always do with uh, hello and welcome on this lovely Tuesday morning to join the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective with our ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. We are hopefully going to be finishing out 3.7 uh, today, we're moving on to 3.8 next week. Uh, no major no major announcements, uh, just promise I'm going to get these things up at some point <laughs> to, to the SoundCloud so that way our uh, listeners at home. There's like a few thousand. It's like a lot, and I'm, I've been dropping the ball because of real life. But uh, I do want to get right to it. Uh, as always, you can find us on Twitter, D and GQC, on Twitter or Patreon if you like what we're doing, DGQC. Every dollar helps. We're putting on a conference, and uh, we're wasting every penny, uh, all 78 pennies that we get from that. So uh, we're looking to do something cool there. Uh, before we dive in, I want to kind of do a sort of semi-recap. I'm not going to do a full recap of the section because uh, it is painful um, to to be able to do that. And we'll, we'll be spending some time, I think, uh, in the second hour of today uh, talking through uh, overall what this section is about, what it's trying to say. And we may actually do next week. We may not do a reading. We may do an overall summary and discussion of points and do questions if we run out of time. So please, if you have questions or anything, uh, don't hesitate to, uh, you know, uh, let me know. We'll we'll chat through all of that fun stuff. But before we dive into the paragraph we're at, we're at middle of uh, 212 uh, in my copy. Uh, we've basically gone through uh, the entire sort of series of how uh, the imperialist socialist works, uh, the imperial social uh, socialist works, uh, how we have shifted overall from the territorial, uh, the, the socialist of the earth, and the affiliations and the alliances that are what organize production as well as desire inside of such a thing. And we've now got the change of things where we not only have a shift in power as we've moved from having the power be in the affiliations, in my alliances, in my family, in those I deal with, but now with everything being controlled by the despot. Uh, the 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 leader, the godhead, whatever it may be, that all things I do are ultimately organized in service of. Alongside that, we have inscription, which is a new thing. It's the written word. Prior to this, uh, we had graphism. You know, you make a lot of little marks, and they weren't really words. Instead, they were more the symbol of the thing, and voices were spoken of the thing. Now we had this shift that has happened where... Inscriptions taken on the task of marrying voice to, to look. The eye no longer seals the deal behind all of this, but now simply sees or reads and interprets directly what is meant by the words. It's, it's a big shift, and we'll get through a lot of that, but very specifically leading into what I'm about to read, we have introduced this new way of thinking about power because all of this stuff with the inscription, with the despot, with the way that the eye no longer extracts surplus value from the spectacle of suffering and instead forewarns, keeps watch because debt as it exists, which it exists through all of our societies and is essentially the foundation of it, debt is now total. Everything is owned to the despot. And now how that was organized and set up is, uh, as they call it, the state apparatus. Uh, they refer to it as uh, being bricked in this cruelty that once upon a time was etched into bodies. Um, in the earth socius, as I came of age as a young man or a young woman, I may be scarified, tattooed, go through some ritual of some sort as uh, 
my body is marked as I experience pain and those around me see this, the, it may seem, as they say in the previous paragraph, it may seem like, oh, well, we've moved into a more civilized, and that's kind of the joke here, the savages, barbarian, and civilized men. We've moved out of this place. We're now more civilized. The cruelty's gone. It's like, no, cruelty's not gone. It is different now. It is now bricked into the state apparatus. And now we're going to discuss how the law and the state work in order to control power and control production. That's my tiny preemptive sort of summary. Does anyone want to add to that? I'm fully open. You should be able to. The law does not begin by being what it will become or seek to become later. A guarantee against despotism, an eminent principle that unites the parts into a whole, that makes of this whole the object of a general knowledge and will whose sanctions are merely derivative of a judgment and an application directed at the rebellious parts. The imperial barbarian law possesses instead two features that are in opposition to those just mentioned, two features that Kafka so forcefully developed. First, the paranoiac schizoid trait of the law, metonymy, according to which the law governs non-totalizable and non-totalized parts, partitioning them off, organizing them as bricks, measuring their distance, and forbidding their communication, henceforth acting in the name of a formidable but formal and empty unity, eminent, distributive, and not collective. And second, the maniacal depressive trait, metaphor, according to which the law reveals nothing and has no knowable object, the verdict having no existence prior to the penalty, the statement of the law having no existence prior to the verdict. The trial by ordeal presents these two tra traits in a raw state. As in the machine of in the penal colony, it is the penalty that writes both the verdict and the rule that has been broken. In vain did the body liberate itself. Uh, JK, I'm going to mute you real quick because I'm coming through on it. Unless you can mute yourself. Okay. Um, as in the machine of in the penal colony, it is the penalty that writes both the verdict and the rule that has been broken. In vain did the body liberate itself from its characteristic graphism in the system of connotation, for it now becomes the stone in the paper, the tablet, and the currency on which the new writing is able to mark its figures, its phonetism, and its alphabet. Overcoding is the essence of the law and the origin of the new sufferings of the body. Punishment has ceased to be a festive occasion, from which the eye extracts a surplus value in the magic triangle of alliance and filiation. Punishment becomes a vengeance. The vengeance of the voice, the hand, and the eye now joined together on the despot. The vengeance of the new alliance, whose public character does not spoil the secret. I will bring down upon you the avenging sword of the vengeance of alliance. For once again, before it becomes a feigned guarantee against despotism, the law is the invention of the despot himself. It is the juridical form assumed by the infinite debt. The jurist will be seen in the despot's procession up to the time of the late Roman emperors, and the juridical form will accompany the imperial formation, the legislator alongside the monster, Gaius and Commodus, Papinian and Caracalla, Ulpian and Heliogabulus, the delirium of the twelve Caesars and the golden age of Roman law, taking the debtor's side against the creditor when necessary, so as to consolidate the infinite debt.
Go for it, webcam. Well, I was going to say, I probably have many, 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 too many things to say about that one paragraph. Um, the most obvious one is the Nietzschean Foucauldian stuff going on here, right, with, with punishment, particularly bringing up the, the debtor and creditor thing. It's something that, that, that we talked about in the genealogy of morals reading that happened a couple of weeks ago, where Nietzsche talks about this exact thing. Um, with regard to this idea of punishment at one time under a certain type of morality, master morality, right? Being seen as, oh, this thing is annoying me, this thing is in the way, so I punish it to get it out of the way. So then there's shifting towards this idea of punishment being just, that you deserved to be punished, right? Like the relationship between a creditor and a debtor. You did something, now you owe, and what you're getting is the punishment, right? And it was seen as like a spectacle for people to observe. It was something that, um, to, to, to prop up the, the, the authority of the king, this is what will happen if you don't follow the king. It gave people trust that the king was going to be able to keep the peace, right? And now um, they're moving here towards sort of the thing that those would write later on the postscripts of societies of control, right? That we're moving away from it being a spectacle to it being something done in, in secret. That we don't see punishment happen anymore. Yeah, the specifically the, uh, the use of uh, In the Penal Colony from Kafka. Uh, if you're not familiar, wonderful short story, 100% worth reading. A uh, very short version. I mean, they kind of summarize it, but uh, it's like a lot of Kafka stories. Traveler happens upon crazy shit. And the crazy shit in this case is this uh, place where there's like this officer, soldier, and a condemned man. And it's assumed that the condemned man is guilty. I'm just going to quote straight from Wikipedia synopsis because it's great. As punishment, the law the man has broken is inscribed progressively deeper on his body as he slowly dies from his wounds. During the last six of the 12 hours within this machine, and it's this machine that does it, the accused become still and are seen to experience a religious epiphany. The officer helped to design and build the device, so he has no trouble deciphering the drawings used to program its operation, although they are inscrutable to the traveler, who is only allowed to look, since the drawings are so valuable to the officer. The, I mean, it's an extraordinary metaphor for the nature of how punishment sort of operates uh, in much of the legal systems in the way that um, the to the outside, the punishment and the setup and the way that the law is inscribed on us through the way that we punish. Uh, and a, being an American, uh, we are acutely uh, sort of guilty of the way of thinking through how we do the penal system in general. But this idea of the punishment being obviously deserved through sort of its own action and the law sort of the verdict being written into the flesh as the punishment is is an incredible uh, way to think through it. Yeah, and 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 I think the the very interesting thing that they're doing here is they're taking like the Foucault and the Nietzsche stuff, and then they're using this um, Kafka story to glue it to the Derridian critique of Husserl and inscription, um, because for Husserl. Uh, it was all about going back down to the phenomenological ex, you know, uh, uh, experience, right, and eliminating everything else. But Husserl um, couldn't figure out how to eliminate logic and mathematics from internal thought, and so he just didn't. He just he he, he tried. He wrestled with it over his career, right, but he never cast a tail. And for him, 
understanding things was always about this kind of enunciation, this medium by which something comes to you, right? Like there's something between me and this can, for instance, right? The, the can is offering something to me and it's like this connection to the can is this medium of speech. It's like speech. There's a medium that goes between us, but within, right, there was still this, this inscription. And what Derrida does is he casts out the written inscription on the inside and, and kind of like makes everything the outside. Right. But, and, and he says that this was the natural um, break. This was the natural uh, epistemic break that happened when the written word became possible, right? When inscription outside of the self became possible, it was always a break with the current convention of logocentrism throughout history. Um, and then, you know, here it's being attached to like the way that punishment is enacted, that punishment is also seen as this thing inscribed on the inside of the person, right? Like there's something inside them that needs to be dealt with rather than it being a, a situation of contextual things, you know, that they were just in a certain place in order to perform a certain action. It's actually something inherently about them given to us, you know, phenomenologically, as Husserl would say, which is like very telling of, of a prior history of the kind of ideas back to Socrates and Plato. Uh, that's absolutely, thank you. Um, one of the things I want to attach to, because it's, it's something that struck me as you were talking, is also the way that they're juxtaposing the cruelty of the territorial socius, the earth socius. And when uh, someone transgresses and they have to go through the process of, you know, basically having significant cruelty visited literally upon their body, the act is festive. It is a, not celebratory, but it is something that is absolutely about the surplus value being generated by those who are looking over and watching. And that's because when I break a law or I break a rule, laws didn't really exist. I break a rule in the earth socius. It is due to sort of the very imminent nature of my alliance and affiliation connections and my desiring machines being in line with that. They go really deep uh, in the previous chapter on the savage um, when, when they start talking about uh, my desire pathways being very in line when they talk about the hunter who wouldn't imagine eating the kill that he made because he's, his job is to bring it back. Like that's how he interacts and how he has value within the larger social structure. He's going to bring that in. It's not just his kill, just as a, a person, uh, a, a man wouldn't imagine fucking his sister or his mom, not because incest is necessarily forbidden, but because Jesus, that would be terrible for all sorts of reasons, almost economically and socially that I can't ruin the, the, these things. So there's, there's all kinds of different pressures and having, you know, the ability to sort of, visit the punishment in a way that is painful, certainly, and awful, but uh, sort of, uh, how to say, becomes a way to pay that debt. The shift with inscription, with the despot, with the shift towards punishment becoming a vengeance, we are now no longer having that thing being a punishment for the thing you did in order to make it right. Now it is vengeance. It is God or the despot with the voice, the hand and the eye joined together through him, looking at me, extracting that on his behalf. And my job as in the example of, uh, the, the officer in, um, uh, in the penal colony, um, that's my job is to put people in this machine and this glorious machine that I'm certain I have every belief in, and I have every understanding of, and I will never share the drawings because I don't have to, it's, this is my system this is the system that gives me justification for my existence and it's uh because i owe everything to the despot to the point where 
uh, and it's not to spoil the ending of the, in the penal colony, but ultimately uh, he makes his way in uh, the, uh, the officer, uh, the commandant, I believe uh, he, he makes his way in, goes into the machine and he actually goes through the process of this torture device to have that religious moment that maybe never comes. It's a pretty horrific ending. Um, if you really sort of walk it out, but that idea is incredibly powerful as we switch to this punishment as vengeance because of the infinite debt, it changes completely how we relate to why we do what we do or specifically don't do what we do out of deep fear. It's interesting that you bring up God, actually, because there is like a term historically that was used for this internal inscription, the divine logos. So mm. definitely a lot of religious connections there. Um, I want to bring up one thing that I think is sort of uh, from what you just said, Brooks, um, when you were talking about the territorial machine. Uh, I just flipped to a random page of this a couple of days ago. And I read the section where they talk about how, like, the territorial machine had not yet, like, appropriated production. So they talk about, like, the hunter in the woods, like, you know, I am God, I am nature, like, sort of the schizo hunter in the woods. And the sort of big difference of, like, the state as, like, uh, this uh, transcendence that, like, uh, uh, comes to uh, or, or, or uh, it's not appropriate, but, like, they, it was on the side, the the camp was on the side of the forest um you know and then like the rise of the state and like um sedentary like large scale like or larger scale like uh production of like grains and stuff like this um i mean i just think that's like maybe an interesting thing to like keep in mind as like it relates to the uh change in the character of the law they uh talk about here you know like partitioned off like the first law you know uh governing non-totalizable and non-totalized parts partitioning them off or in their bricks um i don't know that's i i just think that maybe that's sort of an interesting connection i made from the two sections the transition uh, it's it's a huge one and it's and again it's it's the shift uh and i may say it incorrectly but in the in savagery our desiring machines and the things that we're working on, the, the machinations within that are almost right up against what you might call the real. There's no symbolic disconnection in the same way that exists now that we have inscription. I do the thing because that's the thing in front of me. It's literally the entire organization that I know. I've gone through the process of having my body literally scarified to have this be the case. I don't think through things the same way, and it's why it's difficult for us to talk about this, it, it's almost impossible for us to grasp that because we have to get almost step outside of almost signification as we know it uh, and inscription as we know it. And so because of that, the, the interactions, the punishment, all of that shifts. Once we have inscription, what do we owe? Well, it's no longer those around me. It's now this, the, the end of my familial line, which always leads back to the despot or all of my alliances, which always lead back to the despot. So everything, my eternal infinite debt is no longer to everyone around me, but instead to the despot. And because of that, the despot has to lay out our, or adds edicts, uh, you might say. These edicts being written change how I relate to the things around me. Now, I have this infinite debt and I'm doing everything. I, I owe the despot everything, but now I have an edict. I can't do X, Y, and Z. And I think of, you know, famous moments of 
you know, from Marx to Robin Hood of killing one of the king's deer, you're not allowed to do that. You can't just go hunting in the woods anymore because of the laws. And breaking those laws are now no longer, hey, I went out and I killed something because I needed food. That's just the way it is. It's now, oh, you've done such a thing. You've transgressed the despot. It is now my duty as despot person lawgiver, uh, the, the person, the jurist, I think is the phrase they use, um, who necessarily accompanies the despot. His job now is to absolutely get the vengeance of the alliance upon me. It's punishment in a different way towards that infinite debt. And I, I think it's worth diving into the next paragraph, which goes further into that. Uh, just to confirm for everyone, the next paragraph is gigantic and goes to the next page. <sighs> As vengeance and a vengeance exercised in advance, the imperial barbarian law crushes the whole primitive interplay of action, the enacted and reaction. Passivity must now become the virtue of the subjects, <clears throat> sorry, subjects attached to the despotic body. As Nietzsche says, when he shows precisely how punishment becomes a vengeance in the imperial formations, a tremendous quantity of freedom must have, quote, been expelled from the world, or at least from the visible world, and made, as it were, latent under the hammer blows and artist's violence, end quote. There occurs a detachment and an elevation of the death instinct, which ceases to be coded in the interplay of savage actions and reactions where fatalism was still something enacted in order to become the somber agent of overcoding, the detached object that hovers over each subject as though the social machine had come unstuck from its desiring machines. Death, the desire of desire, the desire of the despot's desire, a latency inscribed in the bowels of the state apparatus. Better not a sole survivor than for a simple organ to flow outside this apparatus or slip away from the body of the despot. This is because there is no other necessity, no other fatum, other than that of the signifier in its relationships with its signifieds. Such is the regime of terror. What the law is supposed to signify will only be revealed later, when it has evolved and assumed the new figure that appears to place it in opposition to despotism. But, from the beginning, it expresses the imperialism of the signifier that produces its signifieds as effects that are the more effective and necessary as they escape knowing, and as they owe all to their imminent cause. Occasionally, it still happens that the young dogs will call for a return to the despotic signifier, without exegesis or interpretation, while the law, however, wants to explain what it signifies, to a certain independence of its signified against the despot, says the law. For the dogs, according to Kafka's observations, want desire to be firmly wedded to the law in the pure detachment and elevation of the death instinct, rather than to hear, it is true, hypocritical doctors explain what it all means. But all that, the development of the democrat, democratic signified or the wrapping of the despotic signifier, nevertheless forms part of the same question, sometimes open and sometimes barred, the same extended abstraction, a repressive machinery that always moves us away from the desiring machines. For there has never been but one state. The question, what is the use of that, fades more and more and disappears in the fog of pessimism, of nihilism, Nada, nada. The, the, the desire of desire, the desire of the despot's desire, always reminds me of um, 
how they're trying to 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 retake up what Lacan is talking about with the difference between the symbolic and the real, right? Like your the the the, the state manifests certain symbolic imagery that you then want but can never complete yourself because they're not the real right there's like that lack that you can never get and obviously like there's something to that but because they're tossing out lack they're turning into like a creative thing and so it's like the desire of the the despot that that you were desiring yeah i mean it's absolutely pointing right at lacan like it's 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 them saying uh, hey, just uh, the desire of the other's desire, maybe not something that is, you know, determinate of humanity, but instead something that is very specific in certain types of power societies. And it, and it comes back, uh, it'll, it's, this will be a running theme as they sort of retake it up, but very much we didn't have a desire of the other's desire inside of the savage, uh, the, pre, the prehistoric, the primitive. It's a new thing due to inscription and due to these other elements. For sure. It's a, it's a great point. Um, and then obviously there's like the death, the death drive stuff, which I, I, I feel like they're, they're, they're taking some, some Nietzsche stuff um, because a, a, a death drive is kind of like a will to death, right? As opposed to a will to power. Um, and and it seems like they're kind of like going they they're kind of like going along that that route right they're saying that like um the desire the desire towards death in this way or 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 death being represented through this despot's desire symbolic break thing is a productive force that that is connected to like this desire for power right just a different kind of power Um, well, like, I guess it's like, uh, maybe this is helpful in a certain sense. Um, the way I sort of read that is from the Nietzsche work in the sense that he like says like, well, it's like, uh, the will to nothingness is like, you know, the sort of triumph of reactive forces and this like freedom being expelled from the world, like, um, is like he'll talk about how like this is when the active force is separated from what it can do through like representation. Um, so I sort of read it like that, like coming from uh, how that like the detachment and elevation of the death instinct in this in this sense. I don't I don't know. I think that might be um, kind of. I mean, it follows from his work on Nietzsche and stuff and, and the, yeah. Yeah. And of course, like the Freudian. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of how, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. It's the, the death drive thing is fascinating because it's just cause I want to dig in and ask a question around that. Cause the phrasing they have here is um, basically they're contrasting it a bit with the primitive where they say uh, the death instinct ceases to be coded in the interplay of savage actions and reactions where fatalism was still something enacted, uh, which is, as we discussed during the primitive, the death instinct is very much sort of tied directly to uh, doings or imminent sort of experience. Um, but now with this, it is the somber agent of overcoding the detached object that hovers over each subject, the 
the death drive and like and i've never actually had anyone explain the death drive to me in a way that's satisfying and simple so i'm i may completely have a fucked up understanding of it but there's a level of the death drive that is essentially towards uh repetition towards uh a nostalgia towards the things we know sort of like a heat death or lack of momentum the push towards that um and this idea that it's now hovering over the object, the agent of overcoding, is an interesting play, but I wondered if someone might be able to explain that better to me or tell me where I'm far off. Because it's a seems like it's an important point. So to me, I mean, this applies to an essay by Foucault called What is an Author? And then also, again, Nietzsche and Master and Slave Morality, right? So in this time of in this primitive whatever that they call it mindset right it it, it was seen as um if we imagine like uh what's who's a good example hercules or heracles going around doing his thing he's not concerned with death per se right it's not constantly concerning him and it's actually okay for a, a hero or for somebody to die because it will make their story grander right it's okay to die in pursuit because you will live on in the form of your story right but then as we start to get into this slave morality, right, where the where the will to power is turned in on the self, there's this idea of guilt, and you you know you're looking at yourself, and that's when you start to become concerned with death abstractly, right? Now death is a concern for you because you're concerned with the self, and the self will will end to you um, when when death happens, and so it's like constantly hanging over, and then this is what they're saying is why Freud thinks there's a, a death drive, a drive towards ending something in general is what is the brief description i would give for what freud thinks of it at least um i would just want to add like one thing that's like maybe useful because um let's brings up the death drive and difference in repetition uh related to like the eternal return and i i mean i'm kind of wondering here if there's any sort of um different like uh, a sort of distinction that's uh corresponds between like what he calls like, you know, uh, closed repetition or like, you know, the repetition of like, uh, the, the true repetition that isn't the same, uh, the, the repetition of difference and like, uh, bare repetition or like repetition of the same. And what you were just saying there, like, where it's like this internalization of like, it becomes abstract. It becomes like, uh, a, a sort of a relationship of like identity, like, oh my God, I am going to die, you know, um, so, uh, I, yeah, that, I don't know, that, that's just what I wanted to add to what you just said. I like what you said. Uh, any other questions, please? I can't be the only person. This is, uh, we're starting to get into where a lot of these things start crossing yeah. over in awkward ways. I, I guess another thing worth mentioning is again, like the Kafka story is perfect, right? Because the, the, um, the direct religious connotation of of um, being excused by uh, death, right? The, the the machine it kills you, um, and and then you know you're supposed to it, it like converts you whatever in that last moment, right? But this is like kind of related to the idea of the of the self because in, in order to make people care about this slave morality, right? They say, well, after you die, now what? And they're like, well, if you do what we want then you'll go to heaven after you die and it'll be great. And you can stop worrying about this abstract existential dread we just invented for you.
if yeah, I'm if thinking you look at soccer, it's okay. Here you go. I was just going to say, if you look at what Socrates says in the Apology, he's not concerned about his death at all. He, he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, all the, the women are all, all crying around him or whatever, and someone's like, well, why are you not worried about death? And he's like, no, because it's like a release to uh, a true freedom unto this, like, uh, idea of a inscribed, again, Platonic ideal, right? This ideal world or whatever, this return to uh, a, a, an absolute spirit type of thing. Um completely in contrast to, you know, the, the what we would expect to see under under Roman law, which was brought up earlier as well. What I'm thinking is uh, the Kafka mentioned in this uh, paragraph. I, I don't know exactly what observations he's referring to, but because it's, he's talking about dogs, I wonder if he's referring to the trial. And in the last sentence of the trial, Kay says like that he's gonna get killed like a dog, and I wonder if um, thinking about wedding desire firmly to the law, rather than having hypocritical doctors explain what it all means, kind of speaks to Kay's journey throughout that particular story of trying to make sense of what is happening to him and his you know contentious encounters with different agents of the law. I'm just speculating. Well, it's, it's one of the things Deleuze says about dogs specifically, uh, and as they've talked about actually animals and the place that they sort of have in the unconscious and how the machine unconscious works with them maybe, uh, he implies very heavily and says, I think outright, that the body without organs is uh, what we have that sort of separates us, that, uh, that ongoing sort of creation of subject through such a process that the animals don't have. And uh, here, using dogs for that, which is, it's it's interesting as phrasing because it's essentially talking about almost pure desire um, and how desire is sort of molded. Uh, it still happens that the young dogs will call for a return to the despotic signifier without exegesis or interpretation, while the law, however, wants to explain what it signif signifies to a certain independence of it signified. The dogs, according to Kafka, want desire to be firmly wedded to the law and pure detachment and elevation. It's a, just an interesting phrasing if, with that in mind. Deleuze also talks some shit on dogs. He says, like, you know... Oh, he hates uh, animals. Because of the, like, he calls them, like, oedipalized uh, animals. Yeah, that's... Well, and that's sort of it. what I was taking from this reference, you know, these dogs, the the good boy. I mean, to be specific, what he dislikes is domesticated animals. Uh, he actually likes the relationship that the hunter has with them. What he doesn't like is the domesticated dog. Um, the Oedipalized dog. Because, yeah, because it's, it, it's tied to this despotic relationship in a way. Right? It's It's... The, the dog is being made to serve within a particular structure. It has to, right? It's not like a wild animal. Like, you know, my dog has to do what I, I say. <laughs> um, or, or, I'm, or, you know, I'm going to get rid of it. Yeah, I guess that that enters into a question that I think uh, came up last week, which is whether or not there's a difference between a self and a body without organs. And from the point of view of self, I think it's, I, I definitely agree with you, Webcam, in that at least if we're making that distinction, or, or rather if we're seeing a body without organs as a self, 
dead since I think animals definitely have a body without organs. It's not. It's not. It's not a self. To be fair, because it it's prior to the self, right? It's the it's the diagrammatic background that allows the self to form. Um, but I mean, I I I would take the Derrida has a lecture about about the the he attacks Stiller's take on that and this exact idea of gr the grounding for animal experience versus human experience that he that he attacks. But I don't want to make this about that. So <laughs> because I mean, even this like what they're calling the primitive um, is arguably not the self, right? Uh, Heracles um, or whatever, insert Greek champion hero, uh, might not actually be concerned with the self that much. He might, he may not have, you know, he, they don't seem to, they don't, they don't act like they do, right? And um, stories about these, about these, heroes were seen to preserve the whole identity of them as well because the body without organs right is the it, it, it's without organization so and obviously the self is a type of organization that's great there might be something else but i'm not not sure what to say yeah no no i, I think that's great and i'm gonna i'm gonna want to push on to the next paragraph um it's one of the reasons that this this entire section takes as long as it does because it's Everything is very dense as we start putting these things in, so it's a lot. Um, to continue. The order of law, as it appears in the imperial formation, and as it will evolve later, indeed have something in common. The indifference to designation. It is in the nature of the law to signify without designating anything. The law does not designate anything or anybody. The democratic conception of law will make this into a criterion. The complex relationship of designation, as we have seen it elaborated in the system of primitive connotation with its interplay of voice, graphism, and I, here disappears in the new relationship of barbarian subordination. How could designation subsist when the sign has ceased to be a position of desire in order to become this imperial sign a universal castration that welds desire to the law? It is the crushing of the old code. It is the new relationship of signification. It is the necessity of this new relationship established in the overcoding process that refers designation to the arbitrary or that lets them subsist in the form of bricks held over from the old system. Why is it that linguists are constantly rediscovering the truths of the despotic age? And finally, could it be that this arbitrariness of designations as the reverse side of necessity of signification does not bear only on the despot's subjects, nor even on his servants, but on the despot himself, his dynasty, and his name. The people do not know what emperor is reigning, and there exist doubts regarding even the name of his dynasty. This would mean that the death instinct is even more deeply rooted in the state than thought, and that latency not only befalls the subjects of the state, but is also at work in the highest machinery of the apparatus. The revenge becomes that of the subjects against the despot. In the latency system of terror, which is no longer active, enacted, or reacted to, quote, this instinct for freedom, forcibly made latent, pushed back and repressed, incarcerated within, and finally able to discharge and vent itself only on itself, end quote. That very thing is now resente, the eternal resentment of the subject's answers to the eternal vengeance of the despots. The inscription is resente 
when it is that Italian? I'm, I don't know what, what accent I'm even doing at this point. When it is no longer enacted or reacted to, when the deterritorialized sign becomes a signifier, a formidable quantity of reaction passes into a latent state. All the resonance and all the retention change in volume and time the, after the event. Vengeance and resentment. Not the beginning of justice, to be sure, but its becoming and its destiny in the imperial formation as Nietzsche analyzes it. And according to his prophecy, wouldn't the state itself be the dog which wants to die? But that is also reborn from its ashes? For it is this whole constellation of the new alliance, the imperialism of the signifier, the metaphoric or metonymic necessity of the signifieds, with the arbitrary of the designations, that ensures the maintenance of the system, and sees to it that the name is succeeded by another name, one dynasty by another, without changing the signifieds, and without a collapse of the wall of the signifier. This is why the order of latency in the African, Chinese, Egyptian, and other empires was that of rebellions and constant secessions, and not that, not that of revolution. Here again, death will have to be felt from within, but will have to come from without. Okay. Uh, I do want to read the footnote real quick, uh, which is the, the things I was pronouncing in whatever the hell language I thought I was speaking. Um, resente and resentiment is the noun form. Uh, Nietzsche makes use of resentiment constantly in his own singular fashion to describe the phenomenon whereby an active force is deprived of its normal conditions of existence, where it directs itself inward and turns against itself, quote, pushed back and repressed, incarcerated within, and finally able to discharge and vent itself only on itself, is a perfect definition of what is meant for something to be resente, according to Nietzsche's concept of resentiment. In his Nietzsche, Nietzsche et la philosophie, I don't even know, Nietzsche of philosophy of Nietzsche, Deleuze, oh, it's Deleuze's Nietzsche book, uh, defines resentiment as the becoming reactive of force in general. Quote, separated from what it is capable of, the active force does not, however, cease to exist. Turning against itself, it produces suffering. Hence, Deleuze concludes, with resentiment, a new meaning and depth is created for suffering, an intimate, internal meaning. Yeah, which ties back to what was being said earlier, right, about the, the will to power being turned upon the self. And it's a really interesting, again, just it's a lot of it is continuing the stuff we've been talking about already, sort of uh, almost leading into this. Um, but the the nature of it being arbitrary here, I think, is really interesting, especially as we move from the primitive, um, as we move towards this despotic space and the way that the arbitrariness of the designations, as he says, the reverse side does not bear on the subjects or the servants, but on the despot himself, the, the concept of the sort of big other and its arbitrariness i think it's a really nice crisp little bit i think i think it, it's actually more confusing than it seems at first because arbitrariness is a specific uh, linguistic term that saucer uses um to describe the relationship between a signifier and a signified in chapter six of his main linguistic book that is in French and I mind French in a whatever I don't know how to say it um and they've already done the thing 
the overturning the Sorcerer thing, right? Because if there's an arbitrary relationship, um, then there's no hierarchy. Um, and so the idea of the law, like as they say earlier, is the nature of the law to signify without designating anything. The law says, you will do this, but it doesn't actually do that. The law doesn't make you do it, right? What makes you do it is like a system, like uh, the police will come and arrest you, right? And then they'll take you to the courts and then the courts will decide and then they'll read the law and then they'll decide what to do with it. But the law itself um, is incapable of doing anything um, other than signifying. Um, and so it kind of like, it's non-hierarchical. The relationship to the law is actually non-hierarchical because of this, even though it seems at first like it ought to be hierarchical. Uh, it's more insidious than that because it's a it's a cultural suggestion more than it is um, like a a rule of nature, for instance, right? Like gravity or something. Well, I mean, this is this is why we have to have interpretation of the law in the same way we almost have theologians for the yeah. Bible. Uh, it's a the the joke goes that jurisprudence jurisprudence as a thing or even you know just follow any law in america what does it really mean and it's like the fact that you can say that about things that you know seemingly even on their face might be pretty crisp is i think a testament to the arbitrariness in the way that you know at any given time we can shift this to that or that to this uh you know 30 years ago in the u.s we had the voting rights act that apparently is just not necessary anymore because racism's done. Um, like just things like that, that the the way the law is written is is almost irrelevant. There is an arbitrariness. There is an interpretive value that we place the, the jurists uh, at the top. It's why the jurist is next to the despot in the way that they describe it, because they're the ones who are interpreting based on the needs of the state, essentially, at any given time. Oh, uh, this is what we've decided. This is what we've decided. Well, who's the we? Well, really, it's me, Chief Justice asshole guy who says this or X or Y. But this is how it's going to be until it's not. And we're not sure when that's going to be. So there you go. Good luck. Um, I, I actually have a, a very good example of this in recent history. In the UK, um, the government was getting very scared because a lot of drugs were starting to enter the market that couldn't be regulated because a new drug would be made that wasn't illegal, right? There was one called Spice at the time. So 2016, they rushed through a bill um, making all psychoactive substances illegal, um, which included caffeine by mistake because caffeine is a psychoactive substance. <laughs> um, but of course, and it was like this for four days before it was amended, but this law couldn't be enforced. It was unenforceable, but it was still a law. It still existed. It was just an entirely arbitrary one. Um, and also in the alphabet, in Deleuze's alphabet, he specifically talks about jurisprudence, right? And he says that, that the left has nothing to do with governments. What you should care about is how the law is actually being enacted. Jurisprudence is the, is the part that matters about political action. Whereas the word of the law is like relatively inconsequential in comparison. That's great. Um, and then there's the other one, which is my favorite headline. I think all of us have seen over the last four years, which is uh, uh, Donald Trump administration violates the law here or law broken. Here. <laughs> and at, at some point you have to start rolling your eyes because it becomes obvious that, you know, the law 
gets to be a bit capricious with, you know, what it gives a shit about at any given time or what that actually means. I mean, all the controversy surrounding voter fraud recently has kind of made me roll my eyes. Like, what did you think was happening all this time? Like, you have a, de a representative democracy. There's voter fraud every time you hold an election. L loads of it. <laughs> Like every, um, everybody is doing voter fraud. I want to ask about uh, latency. Um, I know is this isn't this uh I don't know if it's Freud. Just for, is this uh, I mean, I'm just wondering if there's. I get. For some reason, I'm thinking this is a psychoanalytic concept of like latent desires or something. I'm wondering if anyone can shed a little light on. Uh, the concept of latency as is being used here so the it's it's i think uh, how i read it i think you're you're pretty much spot on that it's the this idea of the latent thing the thing being forced into a latent mode or a latent modality uh pushed back and repressed incarcerated from within the idea of eternal resentment the the nietzschean concept as Deleuze is reading it that's the discussion they're having here that the latency is about these desires being shoved made late made pushed down this instinct for freedom this drive everything being shoved down that's how i understand latency here um i guess i thought maybe i, I don't know maybe uh in a sense that it had something to do like uh i'm reading this i guess from the light of like apparatus of capture and like to create uh to uh, make it latent, like this operation, I guess, um, like, uh, where do they say? Like, uh, uh, I guess they, they'll say something at one point, it's like, subjects of the state, and, and people like Paul Virilio says stuff like this too, uh, like they, they uh, appear, like a, the state appears as like a violence that is like pre-accomplished. Like it no not longer uh, does anything, it, it no longer... Uh, is enacted uh, or reacted to, um, like it appears pre-accomplished. I don't know. But I mean, I guess that would make sense with like, okay, so they say it's like pushed back, repressed, uh, but it's like in a certain sense, like uh, inverted, like it's pushed back in on itself. Um, and this is how they'll describe these sort of um, convergence onto the state. Uh, as a as a sort of um uh, trans like a transform where like the signal is in a sense like uh its wave is inverted yeah and and, like and and they go into in the next in the end of the paragraph they have the line because now you're bringing it uh, up and you put Paul Virillo in my brain um so the the line. This is why the order of latency in African, Chinese, Egyptian, and other empires was that of rebellions and secessions and not revolution. This, this idea of uh, a push for a new alliance, that uh, this, these elements being repressed, placed inside of this, with this arbitrary designation, with the state as it is, with the demand of these arbitrary designations that ultimately is just about the maintenance of the system, no matter what may happen, you have the rebellion and we, in quotes, revolutions that happen, but ultimately they're just, you know, slight rebellions with constant secessions and not that of actual revolution. Later that shifts under capital, but 
in these times it was a different beast. The order of latency is the term they used for that. And I think it gives a little bit more credence to what you're trying to say. Yeah, I think that's a good part. I guess, uh, I don't know what y'all think, but um, when it, the, that section you just said, uh, you, you just quoted where he's like, um, uh, sure the main is uh, without changing signified. Like, I, I'm just like reminded of like, what was the period of like late Roman empire where it was like, there's just tons of like, you know, like, so many uh emperors or whatever and uh, like just a few years because they just get assassinated by someone like you know who's like next in line or something you know and then there'd be a new one and they get assassinated a new one they get assassinated but it's like the same machine like there's no none of that yeah i like that um i'm gonna jump to the next paragraph which is the rest of the page the founders of empires caused everything to pass into a latent state. They invented vengeance and incited resentment, that counter-vengeance. And yet Nietzsche says about them what he has already said about the primitive system. It was not in their midst that bad conscience, this ugly growth, i.e. Oedipus, took root and began to grow. It is simply that one more step has been taken in that direction. Oedipus, bad conscience, interiority, they made it possible. What does Nietzsche mean, this man who dragged Caesar along with him as a despotic signifier, along with its two signifieds, his sister and his mother, and who felt their weight grow heavier as he drew nearer to madness? It is true that Oedipus begins its cellular ovular migration in the system of imperial representation. From being, at first, the displaced representative of desire, it becomes the repressing representation itself. The impossible has become possible, the unoccupied limit now finds itself occupied by the despot. Oedipus has received its name, the club-footed despot committing double incest through overcoating, with his sister and his mother as body representation subjected to verbal representation. Moreover, Oedipus is in the process of establishing each of the formal operations that will make it all possible. The extrapolation of a detached object, the double bind of overcoating or royal incest, the bi-univocalization, application and linearization of the chain between masters and slaves, the introduction of the law into desire and of desire into the law, the terrible latency with its afterwards or its after the event. All the parts of the five paralogisms thus seem to be ready. Uh, this is a great paragraph. Um, and I remember this, I, I remember parts of this from the last reading. This paragraph is fantastic because it kind of brings us back around. Uh, as we spent all of really chapter one and two talking through the nature of the machinic unconscious and how desire operates and is organized by the body without organs, the rules of such a thing, as we learn the paralogisms, how they work, how they operate, operate also in the molar, the, the larger regime, the, the socius at large. And here they bring it back around, talking about essentially the Oedipus of the Socius, talking about the five paralogisms and how they operate here and how suddenly we have now a collective unconscious in a new way with a new type of organization that is organizing in a very particular manner. If anyone has any questions, this would be a great time for them. I mean, they're just making it really clear, right? That, that, that 
what they were talking about earlier in chapter two and chapter one with with like regards to the relationship of like the psychoanalytic Oedipus is is um, reflected up up to the despot in the socius right the one is like a, a not a mirror of the other but that you know they both are a similar type of structure on on different levels yeah and and we're going to be getting into the shift because again the thing that we're working through is kind of twofold they're utilizing oedipus as a vehicle for us to talk about and as sort of a singular point that we're able to follow through all of this but they have a couple things that they're really trying to communicate as they do one of the big ones is that one it's not a determinate reality that we are not all people who need to be analyzed upon at birth that our relationship is everything in the world is basically mommy daddy me and instead that this is the nature of oedipus as it exists within us is contingent built upon a lot of pieces of history that have moved through that it's a growing process and that here is how this happens now how oedipus also works is part of that and as we go through and see these two things we're still not yet at the point where we've moved into capital where we've moved into freud's oedipal sort of situation or what freud was talking about um, we're still inside of the despotic we're right before that so we're not quite at that level but uh, the pieces are all there for us to be able to do such a thing and that is a lot of what their argument is that they're driving through here is how representation works how these pieces sort of play inside of the unconscious how meaning is created within them and then ultimately how they can continue to be generated in our time and hopefully as we get to chapter four where we can go next i think ultimately so that's uh because the next paragraph i think is going to make a, a fine point on this but uh, i just want to make sure i said that please uh, i heard someone chime in oh uh no i'm making noise oh don't worry about it all right then i'll move to the next paragraph we're coming on the close of this which is great um but it's going to be in those two paragraphs there's a, there's a lot so i'm just going to go ahead and uh, bust on through but we are still very far from the psychoanalytic oedipus and the hellenists are right to not grasp clearly the story that psychoanalysis psychoanalysis is trying to at all costs to tell them it is indeed the story of desire and its sexual history there is no other but here all the parts figure as cogs and wheels in the state machine desire is by no means an interplay between a son a mother and a father Desire institutes a libidinal investment of a state machine that overcodes the territorial machine and, with an additional turn of the screw, represses the desiring machines. Incest derives from this investment, and not the reverse. At first it brings into play only the despot, the sister, and the mother. It is the overcoding and repressing representation. The father intervenes only as the representative of the old territorial machine. But the sister is the representative of the new alliance, and the mother is the representative of direct filiation. Father and son are not yet born. All sexual functions in terms of the conjoined operations of machines, their internecine struggle, their superposition, their interlocking arrangements. Let us marvel once again at Freud's account of Oedipus in Moses and Monotheism. He indeed surmises that latency is a state affair but then latency must not succeed the Oedipus complex, marking the complex's repression or even its suppression. 
it must result from the repressing action of the incestuous representation, which is not yet by any means a complex in the sense of repressed desire, since on the contrary the representation exercises its repressive action on desire itself. The Oedipus complex, as it is called by psychoanalysis, will be born of latency, after latency, and it signifies the return of the repressed under conditions that disfigure, displace, and even decode desire. The Oedipus complex appears only after latency, and when Freud recognizes two phases separated by latency, it is only the second phase that merits the complex's name, while the first expresses only its parts and wheels functioning from a completely different viewpoint, in a completely different organization. There we see the mania of psychoanalysis, with all its paralogisms. It presents as a resolution, or an attempted resolution, of the complex what is rather the latter's definitive establishment, or its interior installation, and it presents as the complex what is still the complex's opposite. What will be necessary in order for Oedipus to become the Oedipus? The Oedipus complex. Many things, in fact. Those things that Nietzsche partially grasped in the evolution of the infinite debt. There's a lot. There's a lot in here. Ah, oh, fuck, there's a lot in here. And uh, as I was reading, I can't get the words latency out of my head. I think I may be using it wrong. It feels like I am. It feels like I have a misunderstanding of what he means by latency here, or how he's using it. Um, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, maybe latency is... Um, as, as he talks about this resentment, this, this, this pushback, this element, he's talking about latency as uh, kind of this, the way repression operates, but it's got a couple levels and latency can't succeed the Oedipus complex itself. It has to stop there and allow the complex to surface, but also repress. Now I just maybe don't have a good grasp on this one. Jesus. This is me awkwardly pausing to see if anyone has anything to say as I kind of take a moment. So apologies if there's a boring moment of silence. Uh, I cut this out of the final podcast, so if you just want to let it sit, I'm trying to figure out what the fuck. Yeah, I'm uh, just reading it again. Same, same um, here. I'm making a s sort of connection. I mean, I don't know how uh, accurate it is. Uh, between latency and the sort of like uh, stockpiling that's necessary for a state to exist, sort of exists by like holding holding it back, says uh, like um, how do I put this? Um, like uh, maybe like in a certain sense, like even like nuclear deferral, it's like sort of latency. Well, it seems oh, like in this case, they're saying that Freud's formation of the Oedipus, he, he at first relates it to a state affair, right? But then he move, but then he moves away from that, and so they're saying that there was always implicit this relationship to the state with the Oedipus as well. Yeah, that's kind of sort of what I was thinking of in the sort of way too that like, um, there there's something interesting going on with their sort of theory like time here in the sense that's like, 
there's these things that like like latency seems to me to be connected to this like sort of horizon of the machine like death from without felt from within the like uh you know warding off of like um uh the uh decoding of the flows or like capital or something like this uh it's maybe easier to see in the move from uh the territorial machine to the despotic machine um but like i think like the idea of like the uh repressed uh, uh like they have the what's the one before repressed displaced representative uh, the displaced uh representative and like the repressing representation like uh that move like where then uh oedipus is only embodied by the despot it hasn't yet like uh um been sort of like um disseminated throughout the whole social machine it exists in sort of like a formal um manner as opposed to like each private subject being a little oedipus so in all the PDFs I have of Deleuze, aside from this book, uh, the only other one that mentions latency, which is great, is uh, is uh, Felix B is uh, is Buchanan's Ian Buchanan's uh, Reader's Guide, and the phrase he uses is as his introduction to the civilized capitalist machine. Uh, he says these decoded flows unleashed by the despotic machine are not themselves enough to endorse the birth of capitalism. Capitalism does not begin, it doesn't break free from the long period of latency that is the despotic age. Uh, the, the phrase and the line, it's, we're skipping a little bit ahead in AO, but to say, uh, the merchant was very early an active factor in production, either by turning into an industrialist himself in occupations based on commerce, or making artisans into his own intermediaries or employees, but capitalism doesn't begin, capitalist machine not assembled, until capital directly appropriates production, and until financial capital and merchant capital are no longer anything but specific functions corresponding to a division of labor. This transformation moves us from the place of latency in the despotic age, and I don't... Like, that's literally the only time it's mentioned. I have, like, a fucking 150 PDFs that I just searched <laughs> at once, and none of them, except for that and this book. Jesus. That's really helpful, though. Thank you. Well, uh, the the whole the whole paragraph here is a chunk, and there's a lot that we could do to break down. I think we're going to end up probably having to do like a review of all of the ideas in here and discussion points. So, uh, I think that's what we'll end up doing next week. We're going to not do a reading; we'll do a full-on discussion because it's worthwhile. This this section is brutal and important. Um. But my version or summary of this paragraph, uh, as I have it in my notes, is uh, sort of what I was saying before, that we haven't quite gotten to the place where we have Oedipus as Freud knows it. It's not the Oedipus complex. I think they even put that in italics, the Oedipus. Um, we're not there. Instead, we have a ton of the parts. And that's a thing that's important to, again, realize is we're not talking about these things popping up out of nowhere. We're not talking about them being a priori or or determinant of humanity, but instead all of these parts and the way that these machines work together are all starting to operate in this direction. We haven't gotten to the place where they're organized in a particular way that allows the Oedipus to be there, but we have almost all of the pieces now. 
And that's an interesting thing to, in its own right, discuss. Because as they say, uh, Freud recognizes these, these, these phases separated by latency. This is no, I'm never going to, this is going to be like a brain worm. I'm not going to be able to stop digging into what latency is. Um, only the second phase is the complex's name. Well, the first expresses only its parts and wheels functioning from a different viewpoint in a different organization. This nature of what Freud is talking about, even here, they're saying, as, as Freud sort of bore it out, that's not actual Oedipal complex. This is actual Oedipal complex. These things are almost historically determinate, that they are pieces that have formed over time and are fairly contingent. Um, that's my inter interpretation of this paragraph and sort of the thing they're underlying saying. All right, I'll move on to the final paragraph then. And we'll open it up for some questions and a discussion about how we might want to run the next section session because I think that'll be great. The Oedipal cell will have to complete its migration. It must no longer be content to pass from the state of the displaced represented to that of repressing representation. Rather, from being the repressing representation, it will have to finally become the representative of desire itself, and it must become the latter by virtue of being the displaced represented. The debt must not only become an infinite debt, it will have to be internalized and spiritualized as an infinite debt, Christianity and what follows. The father and the son will have to take form, that is, the royal triad must masculinize itself. And this must occur as a direct consequence of the infinite debt that it is now internalized. Oedipus the despot will have to be replaced by Oedipus as subjects, Oedipus as subjugated individuals, Oedipus as fathers, and Oedipus as sons. All the formal operations will have to be resumed within a decoded social field and must reverberate in the pure and private element of interiority, of interior reproduction. The apparatus of social repression, psychic repression, will have to undergo a complete reorganization. Hence desire, having completed its migration, will have to experience the extreme affliction of being turned against itself, the turning back against itself, bad conscience, the guilt that attaches it to the most decoded of social fields as well as to the sickest interiority, the trap for the desire, its ugly growth. So long as the history of desire does not experience this outcome, Oedipus haunts all societies, but as the nightmare of something that has still not happened to them, its hour has not come. And isn't this the strength of Lacan, to have saved psychoanalysis from the frenzied Oedipalization to which it was linking its fate, to have brought about this salvation even at the price of a regression? And even though it meant the unconscious would be kept under the weight of despotic apparatus, that it would be reinterpreted starting from this apparatus, the law and the signifier. Phallus and castration, yes, Oedipus, no. The despotic age of the unconscious. I still don't understand that last bit for Lacan. I mean, I, I know the pieces, so I don't need to, don't, don't explain to me what each of the pieces mean. I just don't get what they're trying to say with it. I, someone said it was great, and I hope it is. I still don't get it, but uh, that is the final paragraph, and it's, Again, continuing the same idea of we're not quite there. Here are the things that have to happen. And first, we have to have a discussion about a few of these as we move our way to that. So it's a great sort of preview for the next uh, two sections as we move into capital. So I don't have a comment particularly about this part, but it's, it's, it's just something that 
is with me since we since a few pages ago since they mentioned the um, make that mentioning in passing about the order of latency in African Chinese and Egyptian and other empires uh, and I'm, <laughs> there's a lot that comes in right with that and I think historically and that's something that a lot of people noticed and you mentioned the Buchanan shooting guide and I really think that he's also one of the few people to discuss that or towards the beginning of the book he acknowledges that while anti-Adipus has you know discussion that comes in anti-Adipus has incredible potential at the human level a lot of the concerns that they're discussing with and a lot of images that they're conjuring throughout the book are Parisian, right? He calls them Parisian, which for me is another way of saying European or perhaps Western, right? Um, and I kind of, I think historically, and Guattari together, I think that they have we're not I think that their treatment of the other, right, of the Orient or of China specifically is very poor. Um uh, you're and, not gonna get anyone here, I think, disagreeing with that. They're deeply Orientalist, not in in a really bad way, but still in a really bad way. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so like I think that like a lot of the critique that I'd have towards that is like, you know, Spivak already wrote it much better than you know anybody could articulate uh, although i i disagree with some of her points as well and i disagree with her like complete complete like abandoning of deleuze um and that's where i think like there's a difference between deleuze and foucault because foucault just kind of like did his work and you know he was very clearly and very openly stating that the work that he was doing was Eurocentric and focused in Europe, and then he left it sort of like as an open point for other scholars to take up his work in other areas and, you know, analyze them according to their own specificities. And I think that, you know, throughout this part that we've been reading, like Deleuze and Guattari, like they have this very good discussion of, of Rome, right? And like how the, con the concept of the empire or the despot emerges, uh, and then sort of like out of nowhere and for no reason they just have that one sentence in passing where they take what is really what what are really you know geopolitical formations that they're discussing and saying oh by the way this applies to all these other you know empires that have incredibly contingent and complicated histories but it's the same right and so well i think, I think that so just just as a thing because i think there's i i, I agree generally with your sentiment uh, with a caveat of two things. First, uh, just to use my favorite line, I, I used it last time we were reading this because I couldn't mentally handle saying Orient and it's in this book a bunch. <laughs> I was like having issues like, um, don't don't confuse my finger for the moon I'm pointing at is kind of the phrase I used last time. And I think that's a lot of what they're doing uh, where it's here's here's what we're talking about. They're utilizing representation to discuss it, to get married to any level of the representations is kind of their point and the problem with things. Uh, but the secondary part of that is, at, at, and, and you know Chinese history better than I do, they're not horrifyingly wrong in terms of the general way production is organized or the way that uh, you know subjects feel towards their despot kind of anywhere. There is 
some universality in a lot of what they're saying. Not the details, perhaps, but the overall organization isn't wildly off in a lot of it. And I, if I'm wrong, I'd love, uh, just as a quick breakdown of, of one or two, I'd love some examples of that. would be great. Um, well, yeah, I think that on the whole, right, like their point is fairly cogent. I think so. I, I think it, we, the idea of the body of a despot could be applied to a lot of the Chinese dynastic period. But I, I'm not sure I fully follow them on this distinction between rebellion and revolution um, in the case of China and, you know, how there were a lot of changes in dynasty that came with pretty fundamental changes in the entire system of public administration and also the entire system of thought. And there were moments that were, you know, veritably revolutionary in a certain way. And the example that comes to mind is always Wu Zetian, the, um, the empress. Um, I was not a dowager empress, there was an actual empress that um, did a whole revolution um, and established a short-lived, but nevertheless, a dynasty. And so, yeah, which, you know, I think that I agree with your sentiment too, Brooks, in that, you know, on the overall, they are correct. I just think that I was, if they were going to enter into that discussion, that they should have entered into that discussion as opposed to just kind of like mentioning well, so, geopolitical and, so, But to your, to your point of examples, and again, that's what, that's what I was curious about. Very specifically, um, their phrasing around this is that there was rebellions and secession with the idea being as they referred to it and they discussed it in the European side where it's just, it doesn't matter who the dynasty is, we don't know the emperor's name, shit's continuing basically as it was. As far as the people was concerned, that is generally true, even with uh, uh, the empress and even with a handful of, of what I would say are, are fantastic changes that were made. But I, I mean, I could even say that about Europe or, or a lot of other places. Um, the ultimate thing was it's another name in charge, another person that everyone is owed to. It's not a shift in the same way a revolution was. Uh, and they're being very particular here, I believe, in terms of their use of revolution as the overthrowing of the despot and the move towards liberal democratic societies, that being the revolution they're referring to specifically. And that's not a thing that happened in China. I kind of want to have say with like the end of that sentence for a very long time. All right. Um, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was just, just, just added, perhaps even at all, even in the establishment of the Republic of China, that was not the move. Um, so I'm, I think there's something really interesting here, uh, and I, I really like the concept, but it's, uh, maybe a tricky one in a certain sense, the concept of the Earthstat. Um, and like, I feel like, 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 cause if we then really go into like all the actual changes of like, you know, uh, culture, society, uh, organiz even organizations of production, um, like it's like, you know, can we characterize like Athenian democracy like this with the, with the Erstat, um, concept at all? And I think like there, I, 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 in a sense, want to be charitable in the way that I feel like they're describing um like the creation of a sort of universality 
like as a state that can take so many various uh actual like shapes and forms but they're sort of describing like uh uh like you know a machine but like you know a sort of uh structure something that follows a certain path that we can see like even when they'll talk about capitalism they say well it, re- it reinvents their stat in a way um and i feel like that's that's i guess that how, how i think of it to be like charitable is that it's like you know like and why it can be applied to like you know so broadly and why you can even have this concept of the earth stat at all and say outrageous things like there's only ever been one state you know um like i feel like it's that sort of uh seems important to me like when reading it to be like well that is an out that's an outrageous claim that's a ridiculous claim but like what do they how, how does that work like what is this one state that there's only ever been you know well and, and I, I i don't want to get too deep into that because you just reminded me that literally that's the next section. And it, I think it, this one is like, when you want to talk about some Orientalism, uh, Gehring, I'm not even sure you should come to this one next when we do it in two weeks, because it gets, it gets a little, uh, particular in this one, um, for sure. But I, but I'll ask, uh, Gehring, because I, again, when we talk about, for example, the earth dot or these, these larger universalities that they're pointing at, I think there is, and I'm not as I'm not as learned as a lot of people on this server for sure. And I'd love examples that sort of say opposite this, but so far to me, it does intuitively and experientially feel like, generally speaking, once these despotic states have a universality, that there is a primitive socius, that that the organization may have slightly different uh, components or the representation of it doesn't change the fact of how it sort of operates or organizes production itself, just as a uh, it doesn't matter if someone calls themselves man, woman, non-binary, uh, wolfkin, whatever, the overlying underlying unconscious apparatus, the machinic nature of that generally does organize desire in the same ways. And there are principles of it and there's representations that can change those things, but the overall organization is still pretty spot on. Uh, and that's, I think the, the underlying point I was trying to make more or less is that there may be, I'd love it if there were true exceptions that would really break this idea. But what they're talking about with the despot, like the Chinese history is rife, rife with it. And the, the God emperor concept kind of throughout most of Asian cultures, not just, I mean, not just the many kingdoms of China, but as soon as you even go outside of that, it's a pretty consistent theme as well throughout a lot of regions uh, feels pretty spot on, or at least uh, not as horrifying as, as it is on, at least in the way that they phrase it. <laughs> but maybe I'm wrong. I'd love, I'd, please uh, discuss this. This is, this is the interesting stuff. I wonder if the desk, like, uh, the idea of, like, the despot or the, like, uh, sovereign in a sense, like, uh, you know, like, I, I guess, it's like, to think of, like, two societies, like, coexisting that are, like, seem quite different from each other uh like a like a roman uh greek uh athens or something um like and the idea that like you know there's only ever been one state it's like it doesn't matter if it's like a democracy or there is a despot or like if it's like you know the divine right of kings or the ancient emperor or like you know the con the newly conquested land by the warlord or uh or 
our lovely democracy, you know, the uh, um, uh, despotic machine is still um, at work uh, in this particular form until uh, the state becomes a model of realization for capital capitalism, as they'll say later. But it seems that they'll even say it's resurrected the Earth uh, as of this, you know, but put it in service of capital. I feel like that's like it's uh, the sort of thrust to me. It says something like, in a sense, like really, like I, when they're 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 if anthropologically, in a sense, like it seems that like you know they're just talking about Nietzsche and they're like making these huge claims and stuff. Like, uh, uh, I guess it's like I, to, it seems quite uh, not not loose in a bad way, but like loose in a way that like. Uh, makes their sort of models like uh, even applicable or even have any use at all otherwise it seems like it's just that they might be like saying well they just might be like very reductive or something but i don't think that's what's happening i think that's like the no, point I, of like describing it as machines yeah I, I i agree with you and the 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 nature of what we're describing with the despotic and there's a lot of Again, they use a lot of very specific examples, and it's absolutely Eurocentric in terms of the very specific representations they're talking about. But the underlying sort of thing that we're talking about is how anti-production operates uh, itself and how we have undisguised total political power domination that's done. And it kind of plays into this, uh, the, the thrust of things over time, where we have uh, alliances and affiliations, and we derive our immediate needs and actions uh, as subjects sort of between these two. And by placing ourselves on the axes, we know who owes what, where we must go, all of that. And it's very, very clear. The The change, the shift that happens is this is just my little village of people I deal with. Uh, the, you know, if a small number of people, maybe slightly large, but not significant. At some point, the alliance of all of different villages is good, but we have our affiliation that goes sort of within our own village. Along comes a dude who goes, yeah, all of these villages I control. Now, the, the villages get to kind of keep doing what they're doing. It's not like they are suddenly made to, like, become many despots. No, it's they then have this sort of meta layer on top that controls all of the villages and says, look, all of your alliances, you keep connecting to them. That's great. All of them ultimately track back to me, to this, this state that I've created, this country, this empire, uh, the, the Romans, the, uh, the different dynasties, whatever it may be, it comes back to me, I'm owed it. And it's not just me, but the person in my place as representative. I can be killed and deposed tomorrow, someone will take my place. Uh, this meta sort of narrative now that overtakes all of these things, organizes those desires of the subjects they still have their relations. They still have that left, but it's, it's the setup. We're about to move into a place where now actually even how do you organize despots almost? And it's another meta layer that kind of sits on top of that, uh, which is kind of how capital plays. But this is kind of the play that they're making, that it's not necessarily their direct instantiations of how they're describing it, but instead the organization overall of the despot and how debts and obligations and these other items are are ultimately put together and production is organized. And I actually think it can, can be said a lot more simply than they put in a lot of this, but they're trying to give a lot of, you know, examples uh, and sort of tearing down some at the time, especially. Uh, there's a lot of references. 
not just from the translator in the notes, but also from uh, Holland and uh, Buchanan's uh, pieces, they're they're addressing particular papers or particular strains of thought that were very popular at the time that may not have kept favor, we'll say. And so we may not have, you know, a need to hear the thing. And so because of that, it feels like they're stating such a thing directly, but they're not. It's it's It gets complicated when we start getting into specific examples. Uh, I guess Pierre Closter is like the concept of the Earth stat. Oh, Clastres yeah, is Clastres huge. Well. Yeah, Clastres is huge yeah, he, in this. Uh, Craig, who uh, once upon a time was part of our, our group here, who now runs Acid Horizon, um, the podcast, did a wonderful reading of it. I think he did another one with Acid Horizon. 100% worth listening to. Yeah, I read uh, some lecture, some panel discussion thing. Clostus is there. He's like, concept of Aristat. Like, that's good concept. I didn't know, like, uh, you know. Uh, any comments, questions, anything from anyone, please? Oh, sorry, Gehring, please. I didn't see that. No, I'm just thinking, you know, I, I don't want to just think out loud. I want to try to collect the thoughts first. But I I, I see what, what they're doing here. And um, I think that well, they're definitely not proposing a teleology in any hegelian sense of the term um but i do think that they're proposing a, a a linear procession of events of historical events in a certain way that um are very clear and applicable um in the context that they're writing and the context of you know in europe that ends up in 68 and them writing after 68 what i'm thinking is and, and and this is you know it, it leaves an open openness to their work and that you know other writers position in different places must take up on to see you know I think that there are examples of places um, China being one of them of course where you know I don't think that there is a very clear distinction between despot and capital if you know what I mean. Um, and I'm I'm trying to think with, especially you know in in their proposed political resolution and you know hearkening back to to Foucault's introduction, calling this an ethics, right? Um, and whether or not right the the proposed revo the proposed revolution or change or political solution to this that they are working towards, uh, not whether or not this is you know desirable or not for a place that is different in terms of the linearity, but whether or not by suggesting that it is, doesn't involve a universalization of a subject that is ultimately contingent and geopolitically located. I, I think I would agree generally with what you're saying. Um, I, I was fortunate, the first time we went through this, I reached out to a few people I really like in the space of understanding sort of Chinese history or politics. Um, Carl Jha, for example, if you don't know, wonderful, uh, I think a wonderful writer um, on a lot of Chinese history. And I and I asked a, like two questions, and it seems like it's not a thing that a lot of people have spent time on, and I couldn't find books on it, is would we consider modern day China uh, subjects, uh, Chinese subjects as Oedipalized? It's a real question. Uh, I've spent enough time in China that I'd be hesitant to like you know, boisterously say, yeah, now it's in the same way that I would in say, 
UK citizens, would you say they're at, you know, they suffer? It's like, oh, yeah, no, we've got that. <laughs> I can give you examples. It's pretty clear. It doesn't exist in the same way or at least at the same level. And so the question then would be with that, um, uh, I think the pieces that they're laying out here, if we lay out all the pieces as they've got them, like we put them out on a sheet, I think it's very fair to say that China has 98% of them. Like it's, they'd always, like there's some level of the despotic signify the despotic socius that is, I think, fairly universalized, but there are little bits or nuances or edges that uh, the question would be, and I think it's a fair question, what contingently separated them from not having all of the pieces to have edipalization in a slightly different direction? Because I think there is some level of it, uh, at least when it comes to like the capitalist hierarchy, power structure, there's there's some. Uh, I think it's a lot more confused or a lot more separated than we have it. It's very difficult for me to parse, but it would be a really interesting thing to sort of dive into. Please, what Also, can? to be fair, I, I, I do think um, the Oedipal here for them is exemplary, right? And this is why um, uh, Guattari moves away from this terminology and starts using the term black hole subjectification uh, in his later works. It doesn't actually have to be Oedipal, right? It's just an example of that type of structure. Yeah, I, I think it's. I think that's right because, I mean, like the the idea of Oedipal sort of storylines in Chinese history or folk tales or 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 whatever it may be. I, I mean, Gering, please correct me if I'm wrong. Like, not like they, there's there's points of it, but it's not at all the same type of thing, and it doesn't exist nearly to the same level as the West almost inconsequentially so. So I think it may be directly less about uh, do people want to fuck their moms or is it the setup, but more this reinforcement of the hierarchical structure that we believe is sort of determinant and also plays within representation and designation in the following ways. And I think, I think a strong argument could be made that that is fairly universal. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Brooks. I agree with you. Um, I, you know, two, two things are coming to mind with this discussion for me is, well, three. First is that uh, I, I agree that there's a, there's a generalized lack of that research. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm, I'm excited for, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people that are in their PhDs right now and that I know are engaging with that. And, you know, in, in the next 10 to 15 years, I think we're going to have a lot more wealth of thought um, in bridging these interesting ways of thinking with China. Um, the other point is that uh, I wonder if, like you said, like, yes, there's undoubtedly a huge part of this that is pretty universal and... We may or we may or may not want to call it adipalized, right? I I don't think that is the case. I don't think that you know in in the sense that you just deployed Brooks. I don't think that you know there's a lot of intersection between that and China. But at the same time, there's a lot of this framework that is similar. But as you put, there's a there's a two percent, right? And you mentioned like oh, 98 percent of it is you know pretty applicable. But then there's a two percent that doesn't. And I think that the interesting question that this raises is whether or not there is a butterfly effect in that, in, you know, perhaps the ethics that anti-Oedipus 
or that Foucault claimed into Oedipus to be, uh, how much of that changes uh, in terms of seeking alternatives or seeking changes in thought uh, in seeking different ways of responding right to capital and responding to Oedipus, uh, whatever it may be. Um, so yeah, I, I, that is another point. And the third one escapes me right now. I can't remember exactly if it comes back. I'll, I'll get back to it. Yeah. And it's, and it's there, the, the organization and change in China, like just the general history is so different from the West. Uh, the, again, a lot of the, uh, if I were to say the, the symbols or the, the designations, whatever it may be, the, the orientations on the, the surface are very similar. But there's a lot of things that separate uh, during, you know, a significant change of despotism. It was very common for entire villages to essentially have no children, no young people at all, as they all disappeared into another area to go work. And that, I mean, would significantly make changes. We didn't really have that in Europe or America. There's some point of that with college. I'm not going to get into that. But it's a different mentality. These, the 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 massive changes and shifts just came in different places and, and worked differently. It'd be really amazing to read some of the papers you're sort of alluding to being coming down the pipe. And I think it's going to be really awesome. Yeah. And the other point that I remembered and to speak um, about, you know, edipalization is I think of family, right. And I think that um, the way that Liz and Watari here are talking about family and specifically mommy, daddy, and me, right. And that nuclear family, so to say, and I, I, I'm, in, I'm interested to see the difference. And here I'm thinking with like one of the first works of social science made in China called From the Soil by Fei Xiaotong, um, who studied under Malinowski, which they, uh, Deleuze and Guattari talk about in, in the first chapter or second, I believe. Um, and the fact that in China, like the family it's not just a nuclear family, right? But it 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 operates in uh, what Fei Xiaotong calls like the ripple model, in that you know there's a you drop a, a drop of water in in a, a drop of water in the lake, and there's like number of ripples that you know are further and further from the center. But how that is like the organization of the family and like the moral economy of the family, and how that implies more than just the nuclear family, and it becomes the extended family. And it still, to this day, sort of remains the primary unit of social reproduction in China, whereas in the West, it has already largely moved to the individual, and it was already perhaps an individual in 68 when they were what they were responding to. And so I think that that is also another another part of those 2% that, like, change, and that I, I think, you know, just speaks to, like, how much more space there is to, like, apply this kind of theory and thinking. Well, and the shift, and the shift, and the shift from the shift from village to nuclear family in the West was a century, century and a half. It was significant. It was me as white guy in the middle of America from ancestors who lived in villages on, say, the coast of America or in Europe. And that change was extremely gradual. And in China, they went from being in villages to being in cities, but they didn't really have the or maybe feel free to correct me again. I've, I've only visited a bunch and, and read what I've read. Um, the They still have a significant village mentality, despite being what we might call sort of what we understand as atomized. It's a completely different mentality. They're very still in that village mindset that 
skips over the concept of nuclearization of the family. So it's like I said, there's there's little bits that are are shifting, and it's really it's very interesting to see how they sort of instantiate or, or develop. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, by the way, on anything I just said. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I, I fully agree with you. I think that, yeah, that speaks to the potential for a new thought, new Deleuzian thought, right, to emerge from from a different, like, geo-philosophy, so to say. Yeah, it's all, it's all wildly fascinating. Um, so, uh, so next week, uh, I do want to spend a moment to talk through that. Um, next week, uh, here, uh, we will go through, uh, any questions you may have. Uh, I'm going to put out a call. I'm going to announce to everyone that we're doing this because I think it's a worthwhile thing. We'll try to get a lot of people involved. We'll do a stage, uh, talk this time where we'll open it up and people can come up one at a time, ask their questions, make their statements, and we'll talk through things as we go, try to keep it somewhat ordered and get through everyone hopefully in two hours so please if you have questions spend some time rereading this write down where your issues are what underline the thing you don't understand that you want us to hammer into post it inside of the anti-oedipus chat and uh we will get to all of them so uh that would be lovely uh any comments questions thoughts before i uh close out all right uh, oh please no nah, i just want to say something real quick uh this was my first introduction to philosophy and theory and i feel like it was such a fantastic introduction to me it, it just like completely changed the way i uh you know looked, looked at the world and at first it was really hard for me like <laughs> at first you know with chapter one and stuff but i feel like now i've gone back and read a lot more than like it's a bit a lot easier easier for me to to go through you know, I want to uh, thank you for holding these seminar, um, you know, sessions. Uh, ha I'll happily do it because uh, that's how I felt about halfway to the end. Like right about now, actually, uh, as we got into chapter four on the first reading. And I will continue mm -hmm. to read this because every time I go through this book, uh, it's different. And I learn something new. Right now on Mondays, we're doing Logic of Sense. And it is impossible for me now to disconnect those books because they're, they're just deeply intertwined in a lot of different things. So I, I'm glad you're here and uh, I'm glad all of you are here. And please don't hesitate to get involved and ask questions. We're here to uh, explore ourselves and please allow us to support you. And so thanks for coming, Shrock, And thank you so much for the kind words. It means a lot. Keeps me going. That's for sure. But also as a little bit of a side effect, uh, everything I've read now from Nietzsche to Marx, it's also been filtered through Deleuze and Guattari, so. <laughs> yeah. Deleuze, 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 is, Deleuze is one of those writers who ruins a lot of other things for you. And uh, uh, Foucault did that for me uh, a little bit. Same uh, thing. Yeah. And, uh, but it's for sure. So uh, glad, glad you're enjoying it. Anyone else got comments, questions, anything else, please. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to go ahead and close out. Thank all of you for joining. We will be back here next week. Please, uh, I will make a note to everyone. I'll put in the Antiedipus chat. Anyone who has questions on this section, do not hesitate to come. We will talk through this. And Gehring, we're going to have a fucking talk this week about China and Oedipalization. So get your shit together. We're going to we're going to do this this week or next. All right. <laughs> Thanks. All right. I'll talk to you all soon. Thank you so much.